Hi, this is Kim Weeks with the DC Yoga Podcast. I'm sitting in for Chris Parkinson of the DC Yoga Podcast. He started this um, show a couple of years ago to create an archive of the voices and stories of DMV yoga teachers, long time, and or um, yoga studio owners. And so I want to thank um, Matt and Molly of HeartCast Media, and we're here at the Hyrick House on a pretty empty... I don't even know what to see. We're, yeah, we're, we're losing. Yeah, we're, very relaxed spring day. Exactly, <laughs> relaxed. It, it. I'm really liking the crispness though. The outside yeah. is so nice. Yeah. It feels really good. Um, but anyway, I'm here with Doug Keller, whose reputation precedes him, and um, I introduced him in the previous episode. We're in part two of two, but I'll say just for those of you who are logging in for the first time, Doug is a longtime yoga teacher and meditation and yoga practitioner. As we learned in the first episode comes from a deep, um, contemplative and reflective path, uh, to his yoga teaching, which I think we're going to define pretty soon now as Hatha yoga teaching. He's a world traveled teacher, has written three books, uh, one of which has two, two volumes, two yeah. volumes. And, um, I understand you're taking this opportunity now where we just were discussing before we came back on the air, we're all kind of looking at our watches, not quite sure what to do with ourselves. <laughs> You're going to be rewriting some of those books. Is that right? Yeah, especially, I mean, just for example, with the philosophy book, I mean, there's mm -hmm. so much new research coming out just in the last couple of years that are okay. completely transforming our perspective on yoga philosophy. So I've been reading a lot of the articles coming out around this, met some of the scholars in London, and there's so much new to incorporate into it that it's a really good opportunity for me to sit down with the heart of the yogi book and just go through it and just update it with everything that we've learned and kind of the same thing with the therapy books too as i, I go out and teach and find out what people really resonate with and a mm. lot of new insights into the body and the nervous system it's a chance to just reorganize and and rethink all of the stuff and kind of basically update it the pranayama to book too if i get around to that but that would be great yeah for years i've been saying i really should just take some time to sit down and do this and now it's being forced upon me so it's like yay <laughs> i know so yay well it sounds like you have all of the tools at your disposal yeah. to sort of meter out your time and your effort in terms of the heart of the yogi book let's just start there for a second can you give us a like a like an overview or brief few bits on what has changed in the yoga philosophy that you learned in London. I wasn't even aware of um, that. That sounds really a, interesting. A lot of it is, is the richness of the tantric tradition and, and their approaches to spirituality. So there's a lot of elaboration on that mm. as far as, I mean, first of all, uh, today, a lot of what's taught is called is actually called neo-tantra because it's mm. it's sort of like tantra-ish sort of new age philosophy teaching, but it's not quite grounded in the specifics of what the tantra philosophy was doing. So mm -hmm. it goes off in different directions. So it's it's been hard to nail down exactly what we mean by tantra so we can get more clear about it. But I think what was interesting to me also looking at the, the beginning of the yoga tradition because we've had these preconceptions about how there was the Vedic tradition and then Buddhism came in as a critique of the Vedic tradition where we're actually coming to see historically and they're able to verify this in terms of, you know, genomes and stuff like that how the Vedic tradition came into India from the Northwest mm -hmm. and 
there is a separate part of India in the east called the, the Magadha, or what came to be called the Greater Magadha, which is the area in which Buddhism began to thrive. And ideas about karma and reincarnation were developed within that culture. And within the Vedic culture, there was not originally this idea of karma and reincarnation. And you don't find that in the early Vedic texts. Right. And then for various reasons, especially the invasion from Alexander the Great, drove the the Brahmins to move eastward, and that's where they started to encounter more and more these ideas about karma and reincarnation and other ideas about mm. practice that came from this tradition of the Magadha, and it gets incorporated into, you can see it progressively get incorporated into the Upanishads, which develops into ideas about yoga practice and kind of develops from there. So there's always been this process of cross-pollination uh, where yoga has evolved. And, and the book is largely about how yoga philosophy is not like, this is yoga philosophy where it's one set of teachings that comprise yoga philosophy. It's a conversation and an evolution that takes place over time where the perspective of yoga philosophy becomes more and more expansive and inclusive of the human experience, where originally um, approaches to yoga were more exclusive in the sense that you disassociate from the distractions of society in order to achieve your own personal liberation or moksha. Mm -hmm. uh, and yoga philosophy changes to recognize the role of being in a community as part of your spiritual enlightenment, if you will. Right. And the whole idea, it becomes much more yoga about union in the sense of participation and communion where in the beginning it was about disassociation. So how did we move from that mm -hmm. one place to this more expansive understanding of yoga philosophy? And I think it's important that people at least recognize from time to time, we're still part of the history of yoga. It's not like yoga, something happened centuries ago and we're just trying to approximate what they knew right. as if there was some golden time where the teachings were intact and pure and perfect. Often that images promoted but it hasn't evolved like that mm -hmm. and and our yoga has to be relevant to our times as much as it had to be relevant to their times back then too. right and for whom were they relevant at that time well that's again it becomes more democratized because right. originally there were more insular groups that were right. of mostly men right? uh, mostly men not all and but mostly. it's funny there's there's an interesting book for the female listeners especially, it's called Woman is Fire, Woman is Sage, written by an Indian woman. And it kind of looks at the Mahabharata and the culture of the Mahabharata from the perspective of the woman, what was their place and participation in society, because they made a great contribution to, usually we call it Vedic culture, but it's like Brahmanical culture, mm -hmm. which of course is not recognized, but part of the whole thing. And so as much as they weren't officially included, uh, women played a role throughout the history of yoga mm -hmm. also, especially mm -hmm. in Tantra. Um, what happened with Tantric philosophy was it became so involved and so ornate that you had to get an entire education to learn how to practice it, which was both impractical for people. And after time, because of cultural reasons and invasions, they couldn't financially support those kinds of institutions of learning. And so Hatha Yoga became a simplified form of Tantra that became True, democratized that. in the sense that there was enough patronage for having their texts published. 
And uh, are we at are we at the Hatha Yoga um, Pradipika? Just before that, that uh-huh. there was a text before that called the Dattatreya Yoga Shastra. Right. That was uh, collected by a person of of a particular part of the ascetic tradition, but he was sort of like starting to pull together different ideas about practice. And he starts the book by saying it doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist or a Jain or a Hindu or a Tantric or a materialist who doesn't believe in anything. Mm. Um, it said anyone can benefit from the practice of Hatha Yoga. Mm-hmm. And it was a mission statement that democratized yoga, saying anybody can practice this regardless of your religious or spiritual path or even lack of spiritual belief. Hatha Yoga will be of benefit to you. When was this? That that was, uh, I think, closer to the 11th century. Mm-hmm. And then the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, we know more specifically, came out in 1450 mm-hmm. AD, mm-hmm. which was a collection of different texts. Right. But the point is largely because people coming to yoga always have the question, do I have to give up my religion to do yoga? Or is it contrary to my religion? And certainly that's still an issue, even in terms of bringing yoga into schools, yeah. because there's this idea being promoted that yoga is inseparable from religion, or yoga is especially inseparable from Hindu religion. Mm-hmm. And if we're talking about Hatha yoga specifically, that's simply historically not true. Mm-hmm. That was the mission statement was to remove direct connections to spiritual icon you know religious iconography Mm -hmm. and to make it more available to people now it did take centuries for that to be realized and i think the globalization of yoga was a big step in fulfilling the original intention right behind the hatha yoga text so it took some time because different religious paths within india tried to repossess or take possession of ideas about hatha yoga practice and say that's part of our tradition especially Mm -hmm. there's the claim that it's rooted entirely in the Vedic tradition, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. these days is problematic because that's also being used politically within India right now with the conservative political movements, which is unfair to the Hatha Yoga tradition and also being used in ways that are not constructive and are actually destructive. And so it's good for people to be clear. It's a historical truth that there is not a connection between Hatha Yoga practice and a particular set of religious beliefs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it makes me want to put a pin in the, you know, you talk about the sort of the Vedic thought sort of migrates east to the Brahmanic um, thinking, right? Or, or no, no, the, no, Brahmanic goes to the Mugada. Yeah. And then, and which, which had rooted in it ideas of reincarnation and karma. And where so tantra then starts to emerge from there at some point right at a later later point, not then yeah it's kind of you have the whole historical course of it is very interesting i mean originally you had vedic society where in vedic society is basically based upon the texts of the vedas as mm-hmm. sort of religious liturgy and the brahmins were in charge of uh, performing the rituals right. according to the rules of religious liturgy, liturgy. And so they had their place in society doing that. And things got more complicated with the invasions, especially from Alexander the Great mm-hmm. and the encounterings with the East because the Brahmins no longer had the primary position in their society that they'd enjoyed before. Right. So they had to kind of diversify their portfolio of what they did because they couldn't rely simply upon performing yagnas for kings and being paid for that. Mm-hmm. And so they started to offer services like astrology uh-huh. and and the whole idea of... Uh, Ayurveda? Uh, yeah, Ayurveda too? develops with Samkhya. Mm-hmm. And with so Sankhya, yeah. with that, but they, they start to offer more 
things to people beyond the rulers. And so it's more proper to speak of that period as a period of Brahmanism mm -hmm. rather than Vedic mm -hmm. religion, because it's more about uh, the Brahmins both describing the proper structure and order of society in which they had a place, which they felt was being lost in the process of mixing with these other cultures mm -hmm. in different ways. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to maintain their position and maintain that sense of order. So, for instance, you get the sense in the Mahabharata of this kind of urgency behind the events leading to the war because there's a sense that everything in society is upside down and falling apart and people who shouldn't be ruling are ruling and people are unprotected, people are that unsafe. That doesn't sound anything like right now. I know, yeah. I'm totally yeah. confused. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, so that, and, and so the whole impetus of the Bhagavad and the Mahabharata is we have to put things back into order because things are totally out of whack. And that's kind of mm. the logic behind the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And in any case, uh, the Brahmins are very good at incorporating ideas from other cultures and assimilating it into the spiritual philosophy that they're teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're also promoting an idea that your spiritual life is very closely tied to your place in the community, which we you know, call the caste system. And also, the uh, originally the term was varna, which means color or sort of your calling in society that you fulfill. And it became rigidified as the caste system. But there's a sense that as you maintain the purity of your own calling by not coming in contact with things that sort of give you karmic cooties, if you will, or kind of pull you down so you don't yeah. eat the improper foods, yeah. you don't associate with the wrong people, right. you kind of stay in your lane, and that's part of your spiritual growth is, is literally to stay in your lane mm -hmm. in every sense of the word. And so even you get that statement from Krishna, it's better to do your own job poorly than to do somebody else's well. Right. In one sense, that's saying if everybody stays in their lane, they'll be okay. Right. And, and therefore, so will society. Yeah, and and so and tantra comes forth as uh, the roots of tantra go way back within the culture. It's sort of like the the, the undercurrent of of even Vedic religion, mm -hmm. but it starts to come up as a critique of that idea because it was partly a critique of this sort of spirituality of purity, which the tantric said. These concepts of purity and spiritual purity are socially defined and they're based on fear. And so uh, they said, you know, mm -hmm. the fears that we have in general in society are socially defined. Each culture fears different things because that's how they've been taught to fear. And so Tantra was saying, spiritually, we become very contracted by these ideas of spiritual purity. Mm -hmm and need to get over that, those ideas. And so spiritual growth is a matter of expansion of consciousness, not a contraction out of fear. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it arises as, in many ways, a critique of how yoga progressed. And so you find, I mean, Patanjali was the preeminent yoga philosopher for a period of centuries. And after about 500 years, he started to fall out of favor. And we know that because fewer and fewer commentaries were written on Patanjali. There was mm -hmm. less available. And certainly maybe out in the hills somewhere, people were still following Patanjali, right. but he wasn't current as part of the discussion of yoga. And as that, the ideas of Patanjali were less and less studied, 
There was the rise of Vedanta with Shankaracharya. There was the rise of bhakti and devotion. And with that, ideas about tantric practice, which, mm. which were much more practical in the sense of, in one sense, a tantra is a practice that you do in order to have an experience. Mm -hmm. And a tantra is a book, is a book full of tantras, mm -hmm. which are practices <laughs> that you do. So like the Vijnana Bhairava tantra that I mentioned right. at the back of Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, it's a collection That's of practices right. to do to have an experience. And so Tantra evolved as that more practical approach to spirituality, which became within Tantra proper, highly structured and ritualistic in terms of yantras and mandalas mm -hmm. and mantras and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, as I said, Hatha Yoga emerged as a simplified version inspired by Tantra, but it's not the same thing as Tantra because it doesn't have those key elements of initiation and exclusivity mm -hmm. and highly ritualized practice. It mm -hmm. was meant to be more experiential, but the inspiration behind it was still the same. And so it was part of the whole evolution of yoga becoming more and more available to people mm -hmm. in a way that they could receive it. Mm -hmm. And so it became more inclusive as opposed to how it was previously exclusive. Mm -hmm. And even as it was taught by the Brahmins within Brahmanism, it was exclusive mm -hmm. in the sense that the practitioners were had their lane within their caste to follow, but they couldn't jump over into... And the Brahmins were the ones dictating yeah. what the lanes were, Yeah, right? exactly. And there so. was a wide variety of Brahmins where right. some were ascetics and some were ritualistic. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's funny, as Tantra evolved... There was this sense, even within tantric teachings, that outwardly you would follow kind of the rules and norms of Brahmanical society, mm -hmm. and inwardly your attitude towards your own spirituality was tantric. So in a sense, you're Brahmanical by the day and tantric at night. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's sort of sense. like your inner relationship to your own spirituality yeah. was tantric, even though how you function in society still followed those kinds of norms. It sounds relatively practical anyway, yeah. because, yeah. you know, what are you going to do? And your inner life is, I mean, well, we talked a lot about that, the inner life, the cultivation yeah. of the inner body, the inner life, the, um, and how that manifests into or... Well, how that manifests a clearer, yeah. like you know, better functioning brain, and I'm, I think I'm trying to remember where. You, okay, so the first time you stumbled onto tantric teachings was in the back of that Buddhist book, Flesh and yeah. Bones, yeah. The, the Zen book, yeah, and then. There wasn't so and and at the ashram the fourteen years you spent that that was a what specific sect was that I don't think we even got into that um, in the first episode and uh, basically the as much as there are references to Vedantic philosophy mm -hmm. the main uh, philosophy the ideas that Muktananda taught were from. Uh, specifically the tantric philosophy mm -hmm. of Kashmir Shaivism. Oh, okay, right, Because right, he okay. said that that most closely fit his experience that we would draw from other traditions. Right, and right. Th the interesting thing is, is a lot of those teachers, not just him but others, uh, he was aware of Patanjali, but Patanjali did not figure largely in his teachings. Mm -hmm. He was talking much more from this kind of philosophy. And the, and the whole preeminence of Patanjali is something that became sort of emblematic of the Hatha Yoga community because right. Krishna taught it as primary and then his children also taught it. So it became preeminent within that community, though right. among spiritual teachers in India, Patanjali didn't figure that big. Mm -hmm. And so I was just about to ask that question that, 
you know, you're in India and it's um, the 90s when you met John Friend. And it sounds like yeah. as we were closing out the last episode that, you know, he'd come from this, you know, Iyengar tradition. I, you know, I, I was when I when Susan Van Nice was in, she was talking about her experiences with Anusara also. And I didn't know this. I was I don't remember mm-hmm. how you know, uh, many levels of certification John had made it up to, but I think he was relatively medium level junior, which is like junior intermediate junior. Yeah. Junior intermediate. I mean, you know, anybody who knows anything about the Iyengar system knows that if you've got those names by your, your name, you've done a lot of work to get to that place. So, and, and so my question is, um, I was I was going to ask if you would go so far as to say that like the 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 the, the fact that we rely on Patanjali sutras for the most part as the main that and the Bhagavad Gita the two texts that yeah. you're going to see in almost any RYT you know 200 YTT 200 program it sounds a little bit like it was, you know, Krishmacharya had the mic at that point and he made that decision. I'm not, I don't, I don't know why he did exactly. Yeah. I think it was part of the historical evolution in the 19th century as, as the West started to translate, especially the British started to mm-hmm. translate Sanskrit right. texts was part of the practical necessity of, as they colonialized in India, they had to rule over India and they had mm-hmm. to understand the laws, especially of the Hindu culture. They're like Muslim culture. they the laws were clear. The Hindu culture, not so mm-hmm, clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, at first, they went to the pundits to try to understand what's the dynamic behind, we'll call it Hindu law. Mm-hmm. And they realized the pundits were sort of manipulating them to their own benefit. And uh, mm-hmm. so they're like, okay, we have to learn Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. So they undertake this project and in a very... Uh, respectful way they they actually were very much taken by the sanskrit text and wanted to translate them accurately uh and when they wanted to try and so when the british wanted to uh translate patanjali for instance they couldn't find anybody in india that actually practiced patanjali yoga oh, wow. the the teachers they ran into they're like oh yeah i know patanjali but when they started to talk about it, it was a mishmash of bhagavad-gita and vedanta and patanjali and samkhya and it's sort of like a yoga smoothie of ideas <laughs> right and so they undertook to translate it for themselves um but uh-huh. it, it it was the sort of reflective process where as the west got interested in yoga including the transcendentalists like emerson and thoreau uh, Thoreau Emerson took on the uh, Vedantic ideas of Brahman. He expressed it in terms of nature, which made it more mm-hmm. attractive to Americans. And Thoreau uh, emphasized more the uh, karma yoga aspect of the Bhagavad Gita. He realized he was not a very good meditator. So mm-hmm. he, yeah. he tried, but it didn't work out. Yes. So he emphasized he emphasized service and especially brought social consciousness into it. And so ideas of nonviolent resistance that yeah. Thoreau talks about in the content, this in turn influenced India as they're thinking of their own independence. Mm-hmm. And so it reflected back and sort of how the ideas bounced off the West influenced how Indians heard and saw the philosophy. At the same time, they were looking to achieve a place of independence independence and respect in the world apart from the British. 
and to promote Indian culture and its own integrity. And at the time, there were tantric practitioners in India, but they were kind of scary, sketchy people. Right. That's and so I mean. the Indians, uh, including Vivekananda, right. basically started to refer to Patanjali as a nice, neat, respectable version of philosophy that can be promoted in the West. So Vivekananda comes to the West and teaches Patanjali, even calls it Raja Yoga, right. which is not exactly the proper term to use. It was never called that at the time, but is his way of presenting a respectable face of Indian philosophy. And then that became a kind of self-fulfilling dynamic. So right. by historical factors, Patanjali was exhumed and reinvigorated and, so interesting. and you know, revivified in Western culture. Uh -huh. And it's a nice, you know, for yoga trainings, it's a nice, simple thing. You teach the yamas and niyamas, say some things about meditation, right. and basically you're done. Talk right. about samadhi, but you don't right. have to go into the nitty gritty. Right, there's and a lot, yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of samadhis is the problem. <laughs> yeah, a lot of levels of samadhi. And, yeah. and we're given the Bhagavad Gita and Patanjali to read. It's interesting because they came up at roughly the same period in history mm -hmm. within a few hundred years. But if you look at it, Patanjali never mentions the Bhagavad Gita. And the Bhagavad Gita never mentions Patanjali. It does mention the Eightfold Path of Practice, but it's attributed to other teachers like Hiranyagarbha, who's a, a legendary figure, a mythical figure, but it's never... Because Patanjali was kind of like collecting the ideas. But beneath the surface, there's a dialogue going on between the two. And the Bhagavad Gita talks about Samkhya and yoga, mm -hmm. especially criticizing or at least pointing the short, pointing out the shortcomings of Samkhya as an approach to spirituality. Mm -hmm. And the Bhagavad Gita is, is reinventing yoga in more social terms that yes. allows you to incorporate yoga into a life of action as opposed to a life of renunciation. Right, but I think uh, the interest, the most important thing, one of the most important things that's brought forth with tantric philosophy is the idea of community, mm -hmm. and hmm. this is this is what we're working with now. And uh, there were yamas and niyamas as part of Indian culture, apart from Patanjali, or actually ten yamas and ten niyamas mm. that included more social virtues like charity and compassion and things that you don't hear talked about in Patanjali because Patanjali's Yamas and niyamas are the the yamas and niyamas of the renunciate. Right. The person isolates themselves. Right. Uh, so there's a sense of community, but it's also very rigidly socially defined community. So within the Bhagavad Gita, again, they're talking about dharma, but within a context of a culture that very clearly defines for you what your dharma is. Right, exactly. Which is different from our society now. Right. So there's a sense of community, but it's not developed where the individual fits into the community apart mm -hmm. from being defined by it. Mm -hmm. You get to the age of Tantra, that social definition starts to get left, left behind because mm -hmm. as you enter into Tantric practice or even Hatha Yoga, you don't necessarily have to follow those rules inwardly as part of your spirituality. So what we're dealing with now in the modern era is coming to a deeper understanding of yoga in relationship to community. Right. And all of the problems that come with it, tribalism, even cultism, because, I mean, yoga was practiced in a kula, mm -hmm. in tantric philosophy, mm -hmm. and kula is the, role, is the root of cult. Right. And so there's right. always that danger of falling into yeah. a cultish approach to yeah. your practice, which yeah. is part of the human personality we yes, do. Totally. It's like, how do you negotiate 
the ethics of boundaries, power relationships, right. uh, the problems of tribal thinking, cultish right. thinking. Right. How do we live within a community as a spiritual person and relate to it, right. as opposed to simply disassociating from all of it? Right. And that leads to new challenges where even in ethical principles, yamas and niyamas are a good, vague foundation, but it has to be developed in a way that goes beyond them that's meaningful to us and gives guidance to us now exactly in this world community right and also not even yeah i mean sort of writ large in the um you know global community but i would also suggest i've been thinking about this a lot lately with respect to how much you can work on the yoga of your postures, even of your breath practices, yeah. of the depths of your meditations and what you describe about them. But every single bit of that, if you're talking about that as a yoga practitioner, is you in and of yourself based on your self-perceptions. Certainly, as we were discussing in the previous episode, you know, you are in theory uncovering, discovering these truths inside yourself that be, make you ever more open at the same time, steady and porous, all those, all the things. Yeah. But that is so other than it can be so other than the yoga that you're applying in relationship. When you're listening to somebody, when you're talking to somebody, when you are responding to someone, I mean, to, and I don't want to, separate it so much as like the yoga inside yourself versus the yoga of relationship. But I was just thinking a lot about that late, lately, like what our responsibility as yoga teachers is in these classes to get people to I mean, we teach, you know, other teachers, you know, do a good sequence and, mm -hmm. you know, masterfully create the class, blah, blah, all that stuff. But like, what, what does that leave people with at the end? Maybe it's with a good feeling, but it, does it give them anything to apply to their outside lives. Yeah, well, it's, it shows an interesting shift in how yoga is done because often there's the criticism that people make. It's like, well, originally yoga was one-to-one -one between teacher and student. Right. It was meant to be your individual practice. And even as people uh, approach styles like Ashtanga yoga, even though you're in a room with people, you're like doing your own practice, doing right. your own series. And yeah. it's... And it can be nice to have that that yoga retreat on your own sticky mat. I mean, mm -hmm. the, you know, to a certain extent, that sort of making your own retreat and time for yourself is good. Totally. But it's also part and parcel the process of doing yoga that now we do do it in a community. Right. I, mean, I question how often in the past it was actually one to one in the way, in the sense that we mythologize it in right. retrospect. Right. Um, but. Uh, yeah, even the things that we deal with, like you're saying, coming up inside in terms of relationship, that's also brought to the fore when you come into class with other people in it right. and are dealing with being with other people in the process of practicing. Totally. This is an interesting pause right now where everybody's going online with the classes. I know. And you're going to feel this hunger for being back with other people. I think so. To practice. I mean, it's great to be able to at least stick with the practice being online, but if that was enough then yeah, we just do all our practices online and everybody could do it in the comfort of their own home right. and everybody would be fine. But no, people right. want to get back together again. Yeah. And it is, I mean, you're being with other people in your yoga practice and even feeling the group energy, even as you go into meditation or breath practice, yeah. is part of the yoga experience. Totally. And, and, that's, and that teaches you something about bringing it to your relationship with other people too. It does. And it's funny, and it... And it uh, interesting way 
dealing with our very enthusiasm for our yoga when other people close to us are not necessarily so enthusiastic. Right. Everybody goes through that phase of like, right. I want everybody to do yoga, and then your family is like, back off. Yeah, exactly, you know? exactly. I'm not sure I want to, I'd rather, <laughs> you know, go running or something right, like that. Right, exactly. And it's it's a negotiating a relationship with the people closest to you mm-hmm. where uh, you have the proper boundaries for their experience and your experience. That teaches you something, too. And it's it's often a question, you know, there's, again, that initial enthusiasm for yoga that becomes overbearing mm-hmm. for other people and learning to back off and be in your own experience. Mm-hmm. And that becomes attractive to other people mm-hmm. in terms of I want some of mm-hmm. what you're getting here right. how do i enter into that in my own way mm-hmm. that's a lead, that's a learning about relationships too and was it yeah and wasn't that i'm sorry go ahead yeah no i was finished <laughs> <laughs> i was thinking of uh, with much excitement about the um the teacher that you mentioned in the previous episode yeah um yeah it was yogendra who, i misspoke it wasn't yogeshwar it was yeah, yogendra. yogendra who yeah. said i teach people oh no, oh those um there was a teacher back in the 1920s named Sai Baba of Shirdi, and there was a more recent Sai Baba who recently oh, passed away, and uh-huh. he was he was the guy with the wild hairdo that would, oh yeah he could do different things like manifest kung pao in his hand and things like that. Oh. He was a very different person, wow. uh, but Sai Baba was an interesting character because he would just hang around the villages and and as Muktananda oh, right. told it, he would often just sit sit on piles of garbage. Because often these 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 sadhus, they're like they didn't want to be bugged too much by yeah. people like yeah. hanging on. So you'd sit on these piles of garbage, and that would of course repel people. But Muktananda said, if you got close enough, you'd realize that he wasn't affected by the smell of the garbage. He had his own kind of sweet fragrance. Mm. It's totally, and to him, that kind of represented the the state of the group. But in, in any case, it's like as much as Sai Baba of Shirdi was sort of. On the one hand, pushing people away, he set up that barrier that people would have to come through to come to him. Mm-hmm. And even then, more often people came with questions about their job or their family right. or they want to have a child or that sort of thing. And he would give an answer appropriate to the questions that they asked. And then other people would say, you have so much more to give than just, you know, job advice or you know, right. things like that. And he said, I give people what they want, so they'll want what I have to give. Right. And that's an approach of what you have to offer to others is meeting their, them where they're at, mm-hmm. which is my attitude towards the asana practice because I'm focusing on what's yep. really immediately beneficial to people in terms of what they're looking for. Yeah. And if they receive that and it works for them, then it becomes their own experience or their own path, how they want to go deeper. If mm-hmm. they want to ask me more about right. the philosophy and stuff, I'll progressively incorporate mm-hmm. that, but let them be drawn to that instead of, pushing it on people. Right. Totally. And, and yeah, it speaks so much to what, to what clearly resonates for you in terms of this democratization of yoga, Mm -hmm. because you're there as this huge repository of information that you can provide to people, but it really is the dance of the teacher and the student, or I think my experience being a teacher and also being a student in your class, Mm -hmm. you know, is to sort of recognize that as the teacher, you're teaching as much as you know, the students can take in and absorb at that time. Yeah. I think you were even said this, and you may have been the one to teach me this concept initially, but I've heard it elsewhere since, or maybe before, I can't remember. I mean, it's such a great you know, idea. I'm sure it had to have been you because it really hit me. I remember where I was in the room out there, the health advantage, but you know, you pour water. When you pour water into a plant that's dry, 
or it's even just that just needs water, surface, right? Yeah. You don't like, you know, you don't put a fire hose onto it. You pour the water at the appropriate sort of amount and way so that the whole, you know, soil, the plant it can just be can, It can soak it in. Soak it in, as exactly. As opposed to running just off exactly. the surface. Exactly, exactly. Thanks, I forgot I said that. I know. <laughs> Isn't that write, funny how students write that come down, up? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's memorialized now. I've been cre- given credit for things I know I haven't said. <laughs> so what do you do? Say, just you, roll with it? I say... <laughs> You're welcome. I say... That's really good. I'm not sure I said it, but I'm going to take it and use it now. So. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. So then I will have said it at some point. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. So I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite stuck. I mean, of course, it's the Anusara story, which is a little, you know, in the end, scintillating and for me, annoying and disappointing and saddening and everything because mm. of your, you know, um, how many people I knew early on and when I was running boundless and learning right. yoga myself and all that, and how many Anusara people I met and the change that I saw happen in that community over time and it's dissolution in the end. I mean, the whole, the whole thing. And I don't mean to brush over it for people that are just um, listening to it at the, at, at first. Um, and I also don't want to, you, we don't have to talk about too much of it, but I'm just thinking about how you mentioned having John Friend show up as this yeah. junior intermediate teacher in the ashram. This is, you know, 20 ish years ago, 25 years ago or whatever. Cause it was right at the time you were either just about to teach or beginning to embark on what is now your career, mm-hmm. which is teaching. Um, I mean, it's funny from the first episode to now, I, I, I say with, with hesitation, Hatha yoga, cause you teach a lot more than that. Yeah. But, for lack of a better term, that's fair Hatha enough yoga. to call it Hatha yeah, Yoga. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so so Hatha Yoga, and you meet John Friend, and he's teaching everybody about the postures and you know the refinements of it, bringing all of the, the Iyengar, you know, precision into the game. Mm-hmm. And you uh, went back to the states. Presumably, he was there too. And was it at that time that you began learning from him or learning yeah, alongside he was, him? Because he was coming up to the Catskills and mm-hmm. to the City Yoga Ashram during mm-hmm. the summers, oh, okay. and both teaching larger classes and also training the teachers. Mm-hmm. And it was in the, I mean, the whole problem surrounding Anasara and basically every other style of yoga is just the problem of systematization. Turning it into yeah. a, a system. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was where he was feeling constricted by the Iyengar style yeah. and wanted to bring into it the inspiring elements of philosophy that he'd learned from Siddha Yoga. Mm-hmm. And as he started to do that in his classes, the other anger teachers came up and said, you know, you can't do you're, that. Not, you're not talking like us anymore yeah, right. because it doesn't fit into who an anger teacher is. And it no. pushed him to the point where he had to acknowledge and step outside of that and say, mm-hmm. okay, so I'm going to call what I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. And the same dynamic happens. You turn it into a system where you're teaching teachers how to teach what it is that you're doing in your style. Right. And what was initially liberating starts to become constricting in the yeah, end. Right. And this is like the whole dynamic that Tantra identifies over and over again, what initially can be expansive and ultimately becomes contracting until mm-hmm. you get over and beyond those rules. And I think Hatha yogis are inherently revolutionary or at least difficult in the sense that we're inherently rebellious. You know, you turn it into a system and at some point it gets so constricted by the system that you rebel against it, right? Exactly. Which is a natural part of the organic process overall, right? And it's it's painful to go through that upheaval, but it's part of that whole thing. Yeah. And the more 
they were trying to batten down the system, the more it became problematic for people in terms of requirements of what you're supposed to do in class. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for me, the, the root of the, the this therapy... This is the Anasara, right? Yeah, the uh-huh. Anasara style. Yeah. And you as, were an Anasara teacher? You yeah, became one? Yeah, okay. yeah, I was certified with that. And as John developed his system, um, I started to write about it too because that was part of my learning process. Right. And at one point, uh, somebody wrote a little pamphlet about Anasara trying to s- summarize the principles mm-hmm. and... He wasn't happy with it. He said, that's too simplistic. And then it was actually at a retreat and he turned to me and he's like, you should write a manual or something. You'd do a better job of it. So I took that as a kind of a permission. So I went ahead and and wrote a manual that started to develop over time. And he actually sold it through his his website as well. And it was Mm -hmm. useful for people. Mm -hmm. Um, It's still available for people to download. What's if the name have of it? A, I think, I'm sure I've I just it. called it Anasara Yoga or Hatha Yoga in the Anasara style. Oh, okay. Um, if you go to my website, it's doyoga.com. There's mm-hmm. forward slash, if you do doyoga.com forward slash book dot PDF, you mm-hmm. can download the manual. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not asking anything for it. It's it's an interesting relic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but and it's, uh, people are still finding thing. it valuable. Good. But I was trying to explain the principles. And, and the more I got into trying to get more anatomically specific about the principles. Because, I mean, Iyengar could be incredibly anatomically specific or teachers around him. Mm -hmm. I remember I took, part of my development was I took Donna Holloman's book where she had taken copious notes of, Mm -hmm. as like Iyengar teaching Trikonasana, she had written down over 300 points of alignment for Trikonasana. And that was part of the problem. It got too detail-oriented. Right. So John started to talk about uh, inspired by ideas from Richard Freeman, these ideas yeah. of the spirals uh, to give people more. Freeman's of a sense. the one who yeah. had the spirals initially. Yeah, the loops and spirals. I that was that was with Richard Freeman. I thought, oh, that's... Yeah, and there were other people talking like that, like God, Godfrey Devereaux, as mm-hmm. elements of that sort of language. So it was sort of percolizing and mm-hmm. and uh, percolating in the ionosphere or something like mm-hmm. that. But especially Richard was teaching it, though Richard is not is not a fan of systematization. So he was like, I'm teaching this, but I don't want to turn this into a system. John did. Mm -hmm. And in the process of trying to explain that, I realized I had to get more specific because people's bodies are not the same. So you can't take a cookie cutter approach to even the principles as much as they apply. I mean, a principle, there's a difference between a principle and a rule. Mm -hmm. A rule always applies the same in every case. A principle is you take that as the starting point to work with it, but then you have to be able to recognize what's going on in a person's body that makes that idea of action or alignment appropriate or not helpful. Mm -hmm. And so I started to develop the therapy book as a way of first giving people a way to look more specifically at what's going on in the body, whether your own or somebody else's, Mm -hmm. and understand anatomically where the imbalances Mm -hmm. are. This is where the insights into fascia, especially coming from Thomas Myers as well as others, is helpful for understanding what's happening in the fascial matrix of the body beyond simply the alignment of bones or the action of certain muscles, which works very well with yoga. And that became the lens through which I started to see the body in terms of those fascial lines. Mm -hmm. And then that helps to make a lot more sense uh, out of what you're doing in yoga asanas in order to promote a balance of strength and flexibility Mm -hmm. or just overall fascial fitness, as Mm -hmm. Myers puts it. Right, in fat, the body. Right. Yeah. Is he the one that, or was it you that popularized the um, locked long, locked short? Oh, it's, it's, that's a terminology the within the Rolfing community, Rolfing, especially oh, Rolfing, okay. because yeah, Th- Thomas Myers is coming out of the Rolfing oh, okay. tradition, and that idea of locked long and locked short is mm-hmm. sort of a technical language for describing that. 
It is. It's right. so helpful. Yeah, I mean, it's it just is sort of mind blowing. Yeah, you're... and it's it gets beyond the language is simply tight or loose, totally, which is, or, totally. or weak or strong because often a tight muscle is a weak muscle, mm-hmm. and people get caught up in the idea if it's tight, it must be strong, right, right, and needs stretching. When often tight means it needs strengthening before you try to stretch it. Exactly. Exactly. So exactly. Kind of so yeah, you were sort of when I was working with you, studying with you. This is early two thousands. You were really. I think that was that the time that you were getting really into Thomas Myers. I yeah, the early read, part of two thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was a few years after that that I sort of wandered in. Um, and so, so you, so and and that was oh, and right, it was right at two thousand five or something when you published the double. Um, yeah, I was working on it before that, like around 2003 or oh, so. Okay, okay. And that was part of the problem with systematization because mm-hmm. because John was looking at those therapy books, yeah, and it was detailed in a way that he didn't want to promote in Anasara because mm-hmm. he wanted to keep it simple enough mm-hmm. so it was easy to train and teach it and inspire people on that level. Right. And he basically said, if people identify what I'm doing with what you're doing with that more detail-oriented approach, she's like, I don't want that confusion. It's confusing, yeah. yeah. Right, right. And so that was when you parted ways with Anasara? Yeah, it became or? kind of an ultimatum. Either oh, you see. stay in Anasara and let go of this therapy book, oh. or if you want to do the therapy book, you need to walk away from Anasara, which oh, is basically wow. the same choice he was put to in the Iyengar community. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like, where do you want to go with this? Mm-hmm. What are you willing to let behind in order? And so, mm-hmm. and same so kind you, of problem. So that, so there you were. It was in like 2005, four, three, four, five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, three at thereabouts. Three. Yeah. And you had been teaching, well, you just started teaching. No, no, hold on. I'm trying, no. Yeah, I started teaching at Health Advantage in 1998. Yeah, okay. And then organically, I got invited to one workshop and some people uh-huh. invited. So it, it kind of grew over a series of yeah. years until around 2001 to 2003 Uh that's where i started to get more and more workshops and worked on the books as offerings to help support the workshops right right and so the workshop and so your so you know the class that i took and i don't don't know how your the people that you visit around the world i'd love to talk about that because Mm -hmm. there's so many people that you've influenced in this area i mean in fact um I don't know if you remember this, but at I think Liz Koch had just come out with her book, the Soaz book or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And you were like, you guys, that's a great book. You should really read it. It's really good. Uh-huh. And I had been meaning to get it for years and years. And then um, when Yoga Works took over Tranquil Space, I don't know if you, but, you know, they're here in town. Mm-hmm. A couple of, they have one, did have what location out in Arlington, but anyway, Yoga Works owns them now. And they were cleaning out a bunch of stuff because we had, it's a long story, but a bunch of teachers under one roof. And there was a whole stack of books that some teacher was giving away. And I looked down, this is just a few months ago, and I saw the SOAS book. And I thought, oh, finally, I get to (laughs) grab a copy. And so um, I I just wanted to say there's no way that 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 whoever had was giving that book away hadn't read it because because you'd recommended it. Uh So I'm just thinking about (laughs) all these people around, not just the DMV, but the world who have learned from you since the time you've been on the road now for 10 years at least. Is yeah. I 10, mean, I started, 15? yeah, it was 2001 is, oh, is when oh. I first started going to Europe. Oh, okay. I uh, thought it was a little later than that. So, whoa. So, yeah. so almost 20 years then. And you started going to Europe and you're, I mean, I've looked at your schedule recently and in, <laughs> until recently you were on the road. <laughs> yeah. Until very recently. Yeah. yeah. And so, so what are you doing in those workshops? And tell me, tell me about the whole, tell me about your whole teaching, you know, kind of situation now or, or for the last 20 years, which obviously, well, I mean, what you're teaching like 
he out in Reston, and then what? What is the subject of your workshops? What are people learning in Munich or London um, or? Well, for a while now, I've been emphasizing the, the therapeutic aspect, just dovetailing that into asana practice, and mm-hmm. that's most often what draws people, especially teachers, because they can find it useful in their own teaching mm-hmm. to help their You're mostly students. teaching teachers, or um, more often the, the the people that show up. It depends on where mm-hmm. I. I I don't tend to attract the younger, more, you know, power yoga oriented people because mm-hmm. that's not the kind of practice I do. So they're not drawn to it. Those Except for Kristen of, Crash and me. Shut yeah. up. Do you remember her, Kristen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then occasionally some of the power yogis that have an injury, they show up to oh, try to figure yeah. out what to do about it. Sure. Um, but it's it's often the, the older students that are either experienced teachers that are basically seen everything and done everything yeah. and they're looking for another dimension to it. Or people that are looking to take care of their body because they realize the ways mm-hmm. in which they need to pay more attention mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I found in Europe there's a, a lot longer and deeper philosophical culture in connection with yoga, but they were for a while catching up to the asana practice, and mm-hmm. they're at this point they're more caught up. I mean, there was that that wave of Ashtanga practice and Anasara practice, and now it's becoming more diverse like it is in the West. And and China has been an interesting evolution. I was going to uh, Taiwan first, and then the person that opened the studios in Taiwan opened in Shanghai and Beijing. And again, there's a difference in culture there where I've been doing uh, the therapy in Taiwan for about six years. And actually, they're at the point where, like, yeah, I've been doing the therapy stuff, and they want to hear more about the philosophy. And so next time I go back, when that's possible, that they want a workshop that goes more into the, the the philosophy and the meditation, as well as still the asana practice. Is that the first? Is that a first for you in the teaching? Has it mostly been you know therapeutics for the physical mostly, body? Mostly, it's, it's like there's always an admixture of philosophy, but it's hard to build a weekend around you know primarily philosophy because that's yeah. sitting and listening to it lectures. Is, so yeah. you kind of, and it's also too much to take in at once. There's a lot. And so it's a bit Back along the Back to the, the plant getting watered, you know, there's only so much, and there's only so much you can... Yeah, exactly, you know. exactly. And there's there's a definite interest in, in Taipei. And so I'll dovetail a workshop that does a number of different things. In China, they're still just sort of getting into the physical practice, and it is uh, in conjunction with all the other modalities of fitness happening at the same time. Right. Right, and Western the, fitness that they're sort yeah, of bringing in. Yeah, and the studio that invites me, that Matthew, the guy who started it, uh, is actually really interested in promoting yoga as uh, uh, an integral form of wellness beyond spinning classes and all dance and the other stuff. It's just the way that it gets inserted into the culture. Mm-hmm. And it's it's funny, one of the guys who was hosting me in China, he was saying, you know, to make something catch on in yoga, you have to make it a little bit, cool a little bit chic or there has to be sort of an aura around it to mm. make it attractive and so it's the yoga is being introduced in conjunction with the other stuff to get people interested but the people that are doing it i find have a genuine interest in it mm. but it's still sort of at the beginning stages mm-hmm. and it's interesting the internal boundaries that you need to observe as far as talking about philosophy i mean mm-hmm. the people i met were very open but at the same time they have a very different perception of things philosophically, especially, for instance, sure. in relationship to the Dalai Lama, because oh, yeah. they've never heard any good things about the Dalai Lama, so it's kind of a trigger point for them. Isn't that amazing? And, you know, I don't generally speak about the Dalai Lama in classes. I suppose some yoga teachers 
reflexively do. But right. one of the first classes I taught, the translator came up afterwards and she was like, I'm so glad you didn't bring up the Dalai Lama because that could be such a problem. That's I like, so yeah, interesting. But, but their, their response is very different it's just fascinating know. to think here i am like you know sort of sending the meme around where the you know Dalai Lama said the western woman would um would save humanity of course you know i hear that and i'm like all right you know like <laughs> pass that one around forward that virally <laughs> yeah, and right. you know and it's just so interesting to think that, like how much truth that resonates for me yeah. because of who i am and where i'm sitting yeah. and and, and then how they think you know which and is linguistically they relate to ideas like chi like if i talk about yeah. prana it's oh, a little yeah. bit foreign but related to chi they're like okay i know what you're talking about yeah exactly and you kind of approach it from that level and mm-hmm. i'm careful not to talk too much about buddhism because i don't know where people stand on that right exactly you know? um but again it's it's meeting people at a level that they can take in and and honestly i had a little bit of a perception of, of China that I'd get there and they'd all be super flexible people mm-hmm. and what am I going to do with them? And I mean... That must have been so interesting. Yeah, I know. And yeah, there are people that can be hypermobile and so that's its own challenge and that's certainly yeah. something that the teachers ask about because you have women that wildly hyperextend their elbows. Yeah. So there is yeah. Yeah. hypermobility, which is just part of the fascial structure. I mean, right. we've developed differently. Europeans have tighter fascia because it holds heat in the body. Mm-hmm. And uh, Asian, uh, say Southeast Asian people, people from temperate climates, their fascia is looser and softer and more watery mm-hmm. because it releases heat from the body instead mm-hmm. of storing it. So there's something to be said about genetically. Some people are totally. more flexible because the fascia fits the climate right in that totally. sense totally. but still i found people in china faced with the stresses of this massively growing economy these people are stressed out and tight too yeah, right and they're looking and they're looking especially for really specific things from a yoga class like what to do about my tight neck from sitting in a computer and what to do about my shoulder problems that come from having to do this. And that's that's where you meet people there. So where I go, it's it's kind of feeling out where people are at and what speaks to them most. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the whole process of even teaching a workshop, it, it, as much as I put out a, a description of what I'm going to do, it's the day that you show up and you kind of see what they resonate with right. and what doesn't. And you kind of go with that. Right. Exactly. I think that's what every like <laughs> yoga presenter, workshop presenter does. You say what you're going to do. Yeah. And occasionally during the workshop, you keep saying, I'm doing this, <laughs> but like you're actually like responding yeah, I try to, to, I try to stick to room. what I promised, but at the yeah, same exactly. time, there's so much room for, of course, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So the, the whole world is on, in many ways, the same page from different perspectives. And yoga speaks to everybody at some level. Mm-hmm. And there's always a mix of all of those things that come together. Mm-hmm. And I think an obstacle for yoga teachers is if they approach the yoga philosophy in a rigid way, then it doesn't click. Uh, but if you have the tools of speaking philosophically, you can meet people in a way that integrates the practice with their understanding what's going on right and that's what you've learned all over the place yeah. how many countries have you been to do you um, know off the top of your head or where not are you, off the top of my head i mean where you nor what what is it what does a normal year look like as we like wrap up i'd love to know what it like it's a lot of time in in europe i've been to australia mm-hmm. asia is mainly uh taiwan and now china we'll see how that goes looking yeah. forward <laughs> well um, everywhere i mean yeah you know, everywhere my God. pretty much um, but those those are the main places, and yeah. Canada, of course, and 
North America. Did you go to Mexico? Have you been no, there not yet? so much. I'm sure that'll yeah. be up in 2021 once we get through this pandemic. Yeah. Uh, um, so, you know, before we close, we uh, always like to ask her, um, Chris threw me when he asked this, I wasn't ready for it. Um, is there anything you're reading now or anything that you've been, exp- other than the news? <laughs> Actually. Um, you know, that you want to share? Well, the new dimension to me that I'm going to be looking at is um, I'm finally coming across some good usable stuff on the vagus nerve and its relationship to the autonomic nervous system and things to do with the neck because what we do with our neck, even in relationship to thought and emotion, has such a profound effect. And there's what's called the polyvagal theory, Mm -hmm. which is recognizing we've learned to think in terms of sympathetic and parasympathetic Mm -hmm. nervous system. Mm -hmm. And that's even how it's described in terms of pranayama when it's actually much more... The polyvagal theory is saying there are many aspects to the vagus nerve mm-hmm. rather than simply the whole idea of sympathetic and parasympathetic. Right. And a lot of it has to do with our presence in social interactions, but it relates to the autonomic nervous system in a way that lines up fairly neatly with uh, or fairly provocatively with the whole idea of the chakras and the chakra system mm. and how the chakra system is, expresses metaphorically the sorts of insights that we're having into the functioning of the autonomic nervous system and then how to access that kind of integration. A lot of it has to do not simply with breath, but even neck alignment and the subtle action of the muscles around the neck and the shoulders. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I think it brings in new ideas, uh, new dimensions, ideas about drishti as well as breath, as well as even asana and how we approach our asana practice. So this is a new realm that I'm sort of incorporating, which is another dimension to yoga therapy or yoga as Huge, therapy. Yeah. Because, I mean, I've been approaching it on the practical sort of biomechanical level mm-hmm. because that's the most initially beneficial and accessible level for people to approach mm-hmm. therapy. And also the way in which I think yoga teachers can responsibly teach mm-hmm. therapeutically valuable ideas to students without requiring a big background of training when they get into emotional issues and trauma that requires a lot of background and training that a lot of yoga teachers don't necessarily have access to so it gets more tricky yeah so it's i'm looking at what's the most responsible forms of yoga that have therapeutic benefit i have to be careful not about not to say teaching therapeutically or teaching therapy because that's your clients is allergic to that (laughs) but i mean certainly what we teach is therapeutically valuable uh, yeah. to people. And then this whole aspect in terms of self-awareness of the neck and relationship to uh, our experience of the nervous system and the different levels of that, that's another dimension of the therapeutic value of yoga, which I think can be made simply and accessible to people without crossing boundaries into realms of massage or right. cranial sacral work. It can right. be inspired by those ideas. Right. So that's something new, which is a new dimension that I want to bring into it. That sounds so great. It's yeah. just amazing, Doug Keller, to uh, talk with you. Doyoga.com is your website, mm-hmm. and that has your whole schedule, which, of course, is on hold at the moment. But as we yeah. have been saying in both of these episodes, you'll be rewriting some of your books and adding um, to all of them, which will everyone will be so glad to know about. Um, and so, uh, I think that that's about it, but well, we are so appreciative that you Great, were able to you. come in and, uh, it's just amazing to hear your last answer. Cause it makes me, us, me realize that, um, you're never going to stop learning. You're yep. never going to stop teaching. I mean, the best like. thing about traveling is I was at every workshop. I run into somebody 
who has something I've never seen before yeah, <laughs> or totally. has a question of, about something I haven't fully thought about before right. or just has a little insight that just puts me in a certain direction that just opens up a whole new vista. So the more yeah. open you are to hearing from other people, the more, yeah. like you're saying, the learning doesn't stop. Totally. Totally. Well, in that spirit, thank you so okay. much for coming in. Doug Keller, doyoga.com. We're so glad to have had you thank on you the much. DC Yoga Podcast.